Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, and it is actually verses 21 through 35. And I'll give you a second to find that if you'd like to read along. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I'm going to give you an image this morning. You tell me if you recognize it. Let's see the first one. What is that? Okay, so look at the tail. It's a little bit different. It's not Jaguar. Puma. Yeah, you shoe, shoe fans know that's, that's, that is the, uh, the Puma logo, right? Okay, next one should be easy. Everybody should get this one right away. Did I hear something but not besides Adidas? Okay, no. Okay, it is Adidas. That's right. You guys are, are all uh, smart. So, did you know that, that both of these companies started in the same town? Anybody know that? I didn't know that until not too long ago. Here's the quick, kind of, the, the quick version of the story. So there were these brothers, Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. I think we've got a picture of them. There they are. Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. They were young brothers who uh, decided to start a company together in the basement of their parents' home. And they were pretty good at their jobs. And they were so successful that they were even then uh, given some, some contracts with the German army uh, during World War II. However, it's not the end of the story. A few things happened that, that kind of changed, changed a lot for them. First, uh, the two men, you know, both got married and their wives did not get along, right? And, and so that was uh, a strain on the relationship. Uh, and then second, it was rumored that the more handsome I don't know, you could decide which one's more handsome. I, I won't decide that. But uh, Ru- the older brother, Rudolph, and he was considered the more handsome, uh, that he was getting along a little too well with his brother's wife, okay? Um, and then the third thing 
uh, is that word kind of got out that the younger brother, Adolf, had gotten his older brother conscripted into the army, uh, the, into the, you know, the Nazi army, which, one, nearly got him killed during the war. Two, uh, got him detained in prison for, you know, war crimes after the war. And then third, uh, the, the, thing, the main thing that kind of happened was it gave Adolf, uh, and he went by Addy uh, as short, it gave him control of the factory while his brother was at war and then in prison. So, so Addy kind of took over and, and, and got uh, control of, of things. And so Rudolph kind of heard about this, and when he finally got out of prison, he said, enough is enough. I'm going to start my own company, uh, and I don't want to work with my brother ever again. And so he went to the other side of the river and started his own company, and he took a third of the former employees with him. Uh, he started a company. He tried to name it after himself. It just didn't catch on very well uh, and was eventually called Puma, and they used uh, the, the, the animal logo, obviously. The younger brother kept the bigger factory. Uh, he kept two-thirds of the workers. Uh, it was always the more, most would say, the more successful bigger company to begin with. Uh, he named it after himself, and you can already start to put that together. His name was Adi Dossler. Adidas is what we know uh, as the shortening of his name, Adi Dossler. So then we've got these two companies, and it's a small town, only like 20,000 people. Everyone worked for these companies, one or the other. And so the town was split. It was a, a feuding town. Um, if you worked for Puma, you went to you know, a certain school, a certain church, you ate at different restaurants, you hung out in different taverns. If you worked for Adidas, right, you didn't associate with the other people. There was an absolute split in that town. The, the town was nicknamed the town of Bent Necks because everybody was constantly looking down to see what shoes you had. Because if you worked for Puma, you wore Puma shoes. If you worked for Adidas, you wore Adidas. And so you could tell if you were one of us or one of them by looking at shoes. So they called them the town of Bent Necks, everybody staring at shoes. Uh, all the time. The brothers lived on separate sides of town. Uh, they never spoke to each other and even insisted on being buried on opposite sides of the cemetery. In 1974, the older brother Rudolph was on his deathbed in his, in his last moments, and the priest said, I've got to go get Addie, and said, Addie, it's, it's time for you to come make peace with your brother. It's been long enough. Come, it, this is it. And, and Addie refused. And so they never spoke again, even, uh, even unto to Rudolph's death. Um, and so the, the town remained split like this for decades and decades. The other brother died, I think, in se- 1978. But in 2009, somebody said, hey, enough is enough. Can we get together and have a friendly soccer game? And so the Puma guys and the Adidas guys got together and they played a friendly, supposedly, soccer game. And now the town has finally made peace you know, 50 years later. So our passage this morning is fueled by a different kind of sibling rivalry. Um, And and it it is a a rivalry so strong that will turn to generational hatred. Um, And so this morning we look at the book of Obadiah. I'm almost certain you've never heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah. I I don't know, maybe you have, but I doubt it. Um, it's, It's such a small and seemingly insignificant book that I have a gift, if you haven't already started, for the first person that can find Obadiah without using the table of contents. Ready? Go. See if you can find Obadiah. It's a hard one to find. Raise your hand if you get there. 
saw, I saw this hand first. The Larson's gift. One of my favorite books. You need to check that book out. It's awesome. So if you haven't found it yet, you could go ahead and turn to the table of contents. It's towards the back of the Old Testament. But it's less, I mean, it's basically a short chapter. That's the, that's the length of the book. So it's only on like a half a page in your Bible probably. Uh, it's a short, a short little thing. Let's pray together as we read God's Word. Father, would you use this time uh, to teach us? Help us to hear your truth. Nothing from me, God, but, but what is true from you. God, remove the distractions in our minds and our hearts and the things that are going on in our lives. God, could you help us be distanced from those distractions so that we could hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to read the first 17 verses of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Okay, so... There's a reason you've probably never heard a sermon about Obadiah before. Uh, you could kind of figure out why just from reading the first 17 verses. Background and history to this little book are super important. Um, if you're going to understand anything about Obadiah, you kind of have to go back several centuries to figure out what in the world is going on here. So um, most scholars think that Obadiah is written after Israel has been destroyed and only Judah remains, I think. We've kind of got a timeline. Some of you guys probably still have one of these. You can see him. Uh, there's a question mark, right? He's one of the two that has a question mark. We're not a, really sure when Obadiah was written. It's somewhere in there. Something maybe as Judah is being destroyed in 586. Not 100% sure. Um, typically, it's going to be dated in the kind of early 600s-ish. Um, Nothing is known about Obadiah, the author, like absolutely nothing. Um, this book is unique in that it is the only, uh, only book that's only, uh, of the minor prophets, that's only addressed to the, one of the foreign nations. I think we have the, uh, 
Have we looked at the, the audience yet? Uh, maybe, I can't remember if we did or not. So, yeah, that one. So, it's written to Edom, uh, only to Edom. And so it's kind of weird uh, in, in the way that it is, is written. Uh, the people of Edom, you probably don't know that whole, all that much about. Uh, they tend to be called the Edomites in, in Scripture. Um, later in history, they'll be called the Idumeans. And, and so it, it can get a little confusing. So we need to go back just a, a couple hundred years. Uh, so it all starts with Abraham. If you remember Father Abraham, right? Uh, he's going to be the father of nations. Um, he's told late in his life they're going to have ch- uh, a, a son. And they're you know, eventually faithful through all of that. And they, they, they do have a son, uh, Isaac. And Isaac grows up and... Um, he and his uh, wife, Rebecca, are going to have uh, paternal twin boys. Um, and, and that means they're not identical, right? So they're not identical twins, but they're twins. And one was named Jacob, and, and we kind of know a little bit more of his story. His name is later changed to Israel. Um, and then the other, the other brother, the, the other boy, is named Esau. And, and Esau... Uh, he had a nickname because of his, they call him a, his ruddy complexion and, and reddish hair. He was simply called Red, uh, which in, um, in his language is Edom. So that was his nickname, right? He was just called Red because he was, you know, red-featured. So um, you, you guys probably know a little bit, Jacob and Esau don't always get along in their story. Kind of towards the end of their life, they seem to at least find understanding, though they, they're going to part ways Israel is going to have the land we kind of think of as Israel. Um, I think I've got my little pointer here. So there's a map. So uh, go to the kind of, you see right there, this will have a little work. Yeah, right there. So there's Edom. There's, I think, is there another map? Maybe. Maybe it's a different one. Sorry. There it is. Yeah. So this is kind of what it ends up looking like. Um, where Edom is going to, is going to, Esau is going to kind of take in some of that land. And so um, Israel will get, will get settled in what we know of as the promised land, right? And then um, where we think of as Jordan, uh, today, modern-day Jordan, uh, that's where Edom is going to settle. Um, so, so the Edomites were mountain people. They were desert people. They were... Uh, you know, probably know where you would want to live. Uh, I think we've got a couple of pictures of what, of what Edom looks like. So, you know, you can't just go find water anywhere in Edom. It's a, it's a kind of a tough place. But there is one place that you're probably familiar with. But if I say the word Jordan, there's probably a place you think of. What is that? I heard, did I hear Petra? Somebody said Petra, I think. Yeah, Petra is about all you know of when you think of Jordan. So just look at that picture for a second. In the midst of that desert, right, we've got this one little interesting little thing that was built. It was a fortress built into a mountain in the middle of a mountain range. And so when, when God tells them, hey, though you live with the eagles, that's what they're meaning. They're living up in the heights where they think no army would... Could you go back one picture? You know, no army would bother to try to go through all of that to get to this little thing. They thought nobody would ever come, you know, nobody would ever come and bother us. We're, we're sovereign up here by ourselves. 
And so, um, it's such an interesting place. If you guys remember the movie Indiana Jones, right? This is the last crusade. This is where kind of the final scene of the last crusade takes place. Uh, really, really, has anybody been to Petra? Anybody? Nobody? Okay, just curious. Um, so if you, if you kind of go back, remember the book, the story of Genesis, uh, you've got uh, Jacob, um, and he's got these sons, and he's got this, you know, Joseph, the coat of many colors, and all that stuff, and they end up in Egypt over all of that stuff, right, because the brothers betray him and send him to Egypt, and they have, end up staying in Egypt because of the famine, they're there 400 years, and then they're enslaved by the Egyptians, and then finally Moses is, is sent to them a deliverer, and he's going to bring them out. Well, they end up wandering through the desert, and you guessed it, they're getting into this area, all of that area that they wandered when they talk about the wilderness. This is kind of where we're talking about. So um, in Numbers chapter 20, the, the Israelites are still roaming, and there's a, they're headed to the promised land, and they're at the border of Edom. So remember, you've got Jacob and Esau. You've got brothers so now you've got distant cousins. These guys are, these guys are, are relatives to the Israelites. And so um, in Numbers 20, we see this. It says, this, this message is from your relatives, uh, the people of Israel. You know all the hardships we have been through and that our ancestors went down to Egypt. Skip it on. It says, please let us pass through your country. We will be careful not to go through your fields and vineyards. We won't even drink water from your wells. We will stay on the king's road. We'll never even leave that until we have crossed through your borders. Seems fair enough asking your cousin, hey, can I go through your land to go somewhere else? And how does, how does the Edomite king respond? Stay out of my land or I will meet you with an army. This was a betrayal of God's people from their, rel- from their relatives, right? And so the, the Israelites are forced to make a detour around the, the land of Edom, which was not easy. And God kind of said, hey, because of the way you treated my people, uh, it's not going to be good for you. So um, we know in 2 Samuel 8 that at some point David as king is doing pretty well, and he takes Edom into his kingdom somewhat forcefully. They're now part of Israel. Um, And so they are one part of the greatest that Israel ever is. Edom is a part of that. And so then under Solomon as well. And then after that, there's this division where we talked about Israel and Judah, the, the two nations. Edom says, hey, by the way, we're out of here. Since you guys are having your little civil war, we're just going to go ahead and leave. And so they're now a separate nation again, and they're never going to get along. So um, this big theme throughout all of Scripture, though, is that God is displeased with Edom for, for many of their things that they do wrong. They just never seem to treat Israel the way they ought to. And so we could just say that the book of Obadiah is kind of their trial, verdict, sentencing, all in one, one tiny little chapter here. So, but I, I just want to, what I want to do is kind of go through what God, according, you know, through the book of Obadiah says that they were doing wrong. Okay, and so the first one, and all of these apply to us, so just, just, just bear with me through. Again, this is why people don't normally preach through Obadiah, is it's a little bit tricky, but... So just kind of bear with me, because this is all relevant for us. And so the first is this. They wouldn't let it go, right? They wouldn't let it go. Yes, Jacob didn't treat Esau very well. He had, Esau had very uh, legitimate complaints and gripes. There, was, there were reasons to be angry. He stole his birthright. He stole the blessing, all the stuff, you, if you're familiar with that story. 
but they didn't ever let it go. And so they kept that bitterness. And then when Israel asked for help, they says, no, you, you, nope, not giving it to you. I have right to be bitter. You may not enter my land. It's not going to happen. So it just keeps going, and it never stops. And so, in fact, if you go into the New Testament, um, the Edomites are still trying to get revenge in the New Testament on the Jews. And so Herod the Great was an Edomite. Herod Antipas, Philip the Tetrarch, Herodias, all the stories of John the Baptist getting his head, all of that has to do with, with the Edomites and the Jews and this, this feud that never goes away. Herod Agrippa killed James, if you remember that story in Acts. Still more of this Edomite-Jewish feud that wouldn't ever, they wouldn't ever let it go. Romans 12, 19 says, Dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to the Lord, for it is written, I will take vengeance, I will repay those who deserve it, says the Lord. When we have been sinned against, when we have been hurt, we must learn to let God have it. I'm sure that if, if I took time and I was able to sit down with all of you and, and hear your stories and say, tell me about some hurts that, that have happened in your life. I'm sure that I would hear terrible things. And all the things that the world would say, you know what? People, people did you wrong and you have every right to stay angry over that. You have every right to hold on to this bitterness and anger. You have every right. I, I have to remind myself of a great quote that that St. Augustine or Augustine, depending on where you come from, uh, said. He said, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Maybe you've heard that before. That's, that's from Augustine. Drinking poison, or bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That's not what we're called to do. And, and the Edomites held on to bitterness. They felt like they'd been wronged and they would never let it go. Matthew 6 14 and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to give others, your Father will not forgive your sins. We should not be people of unforgiveness. We are to let God deal with other people. Find forgiveness. The second thing they did wrong is they they were proud people. If you look at verses uh, 2 through 4, again, we can read that real quick. So see, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. My very profound theological opinion is that there's not a sin under heaven that God detests more than pride. When you read through Scripture, Pride seems to be the starting point for all of the things that God dislikes. Proverbs 6.16 talks about what God hates, and pride is the first thing on that list. It's pride. And we're we're not just talking about, you know, self-confidence. That's not not what we're talking about. We're we're talking about self-sufficiency, the sense of independence from everything, including God. I can do all things. I don't need any Savior. I don't need any help. I can do it. It is me. That's what we're talking about. Their, their pride blinds them to the need of, of God. They, they live in the clefts of the rocks, right? They have this fortress that no one could ever come and attack. You would be foolish to climb these mountains and try to come get us. 
It says they trust in their might. They live in the clefts of the rocks. You make the home their heights. Who can bring me down? They trust in their riches. If, you, if we go on in verse 6, it says that, that they have these hidden treasures that they're holding on to. And it makes me think of, of, you know, Lord of the Rings. They're holding on to their precious. Nobody can come up here to this cave of mine where all my treasures are. No one can get to that. And then in verse 7, it says they trust their allies. We've got these big, strong friends, and nobody can touch us. It says they have special relations. And they trust in their wisdom in verse 8. It says, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? So this is, this is the attitude that God is dealing with with these people. They feel secure. They feel like they're in control. These externals make them feel good make, uh, and, and make them feel confident in their own future. Does this sound familiar to Americans? When, when, we, when we get self-sufficient and we, you know, we control our own destiny and put our, everything in our own hands, we feel like our, we are in charge of all things. We get to, to put confidence in ourselves, our strength, our resources, our allies, our wisdom, and not in God. That's, that's where downfall occurs. You know, I think Americans struggle with this because in our, uh, you know, in our determination to be independent, you know, not need anyone, but pull myself up by my own bootstraps, right? That's, that's the attitude we have as Americans. Pride and arrogance can sneak in really easy that way. Being a Texan, I, I think probably Texans are the proudest and probably most arrogant of all this, of all this different uh, states. And, and believe me, it's a quick path to go from being proud of who you are to thinking that you're in control and, and don't need anyone, including God. It happens for Americans every single day. My trust fund looks good. My retirement account's in pretty good shape. My house is, I, what else do I need? I have all that I want, and, and I have done it. It's all been me, right? I'm self-sufficient. Why would I need a Savior? The third thing that God had against them is that they were evil and had a hand in harming God's people. We, we know through Scripture there were several times that they could have helped the, the Jews, but they did not. They sat by as Israel was attacked over and over. We could say those are kind of passive sins, right? But if you remember from James 4, it, it says that if you know that there's good you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. It's a sin to not help when we know that we should. But more than that, their hands are dirty too. And we read part of that through verse 17. Uh, th- th- several times in the book of Kings, we know that e- Edom was violent towards Israel towards God's people in Judah. They, and and when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destro- destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, guess what? They were right behind them, kind of like the pesky little brother. They came in behind after all the hard work had been done, and they were stealing things out of Jerusalem. They were looting the people of, of God. And, and even worse, it says that they captured fleeing Jews and turned them over to the Babylonians. Turned them over to the Assyrians and said, hey, hey, look, we got them for you. Aren't, aren't you, weren't we allies? Remember, don't hurt us, because we got those guys for you, as the Jews tried to flee for their lives. And they become Idumeans, and, and, and the biblical history starts getting even more and more complex, as we talked about uh, into the New Testament. But you can see why God is promising destruction on this, on this nation. And we could say that it did, right? Have you ever been to an Edomite restaurant? Have you ever been to an Idumean restaurant? 
No, they, they don't exist as a culture anymore. God fulfilled that promise. So quickly, let me just kind of wrap up and tell you why all this matters. Because we've been looking at this obscure book from 6th century B.C. about an unknown, now extinct nation. And, and my simple answer would be this, that, that God cares about it. Not just about Edom, but about all of it. About the behaviors, the, the unforgiveness, the pride, the injustice. He cares about all of those things. God for, cares about our unforgiving hearts. If you remember the story that we read just a few minutes ago in Matthew 18 about a, a king who forgave a man for billions of dollars. He had billions of dollars in debt, and the king forgave him. And then that same guy went out and had a man arrested, almost beat him, beat him up and had him arrested over a couple hundred bucks. And, and, and Jesus says, that's, that's like you guys. You don't recognize what has been done for you, on God's, you know, from God's side, and you're going to be unforgiving to somebody else who's done so little to you? Jesus would say it is unacceptable to not forgive others. God cares about injustice. He has asked us to be people who bring help, who bring justice. When we see things that aren't right, we're supposed to be a part of making things right. And if you recall in Matthew 25, Jesus talking about what you do for the least of these, you've done for him. And, and then he says, and what you haven't done for the least of these, that means you also haven't done for me. So anytime you didn't show concern for the least of these, you didn't show concern for Jesus. We are supposed to seek justice and do good where we can find it. God cares about it. God is watching. God is at work. He loves us. He will bring justice. As it is mentioned several times in the book of Obadiah, the day of the Lord is coming. And so that's about as far as you probably will ever hear from me. You guys know I'm not much of like a fire and brimstone kind of preacher. But that's what's, that's what's happening to Edom because of their attitudes. And so we can take note of that. Don't be unforgiving. Don't be like the Dassler family who split a town over their anger, over their feuding, over their refusal to let things go and forgive each other. Don't live with anger. Don't live with pride. Don't live with unforgiveness. And the, the final reason that Obadiah matters is this. Remember I told you that this book was addressed to Edom, this nation that doesn't exist anymore. But I, I said it was meant to be read by God's people. Right? God's people were supposed to read it as well. And so, you know, why would, why, would we, <clears throat> why would God want his people to read a story about their enemy's destruction? Because of hope, right? Because God is bringing about justice in this world. And in your own situation, I would say God cares about it, and he will work things out for the good. I don't know what it's going to look like, but God cares, and he's at work. And then if there was a letter, this would be the P.S. to the story. Final, final thing, I would say this. We covered Amos a few weeks ago, because we, we're in, this is week 10 of our Minor Prophets. We got through Amos a while back. And there was mention of, of Edom in the book of Amos, and it was in chapter 9. And, and basically what it said was, there's going to be a remnant from Edom that will be a part of all the other nations that are praising and worshiping at God's feet someday, as God's going to bring people to himself. The Edomites will be a part of that. And, and we said, that's pretty, pretty amazing. He's showing destruction, and we read in Obadiah these, this bad news, but God's still not done. There will be redemption. He is still showing forgiveness and kindness to the Edomite people, and, and they will be a part of the remnant 
of God's people. Because God has never done in his quest to redeem. We, we, we have said around here before that Jesus delights in showing mercy and he shows forgiveness to the uttermost, even to the Edomites, the ones who betrayed him. He still shows mercy and forgiveness. And he's called us to do the same. And so that's the good news that we see is that God has never done, even with us as traitors and enemies of him, he still delights to show mercy and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are involved in the world, you care, and there are times that it's hard to see. We see injustice, we see terrible things. But God, we are so thankful that you sent your son. And you poured out your justice on him. So that your world could know forgiveness. God, would you help us to be instruments of of justice and goodness and mercy in the world? Would you help us to remember the grace and mercy that's been shown us? Father, the the grudges that we are holding, the, the bitterness that we are holding in our hearts, Father, would you work in them that you would help us to find a way to show forgiveness? Even if they don't ask for it, even if the other person doesn't want it, would you help us to find forgiveness in our own hearts? Because you have shown us forgiveness. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.